Welcome everybody to another episode of the Grace in Common podcast, a podcast between four friends, four theologians from four different countries and three different continents where we talk New Calvinism, theology and culture. Um, with me today is uh, James Aglinton, who is a senior lecturer of Reformed Theology at the University of Edinburgh, um, also Grace Utanto, a native of Indonesia and assistant professor at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., um, and we have a guest this episode, um, that's Amber Bowen, um, who teaches at Redeemer University in Hamilton, Ontario, in Canada. Um, we'll um, get to know her a little bit better soon. Um, and my name is Marinus de Jong, pastor of the Oosterparkerk in Amsterdam. And I teach at the New Calvinism Research Institute in Kampen, Utrecht. All right, so um, welcome everyone for this episode, and a special welcome to you, Amber. It's great to have you. Um, and um, yeah, so I just said in the intro that you teach at Redeemer University and you teach philosophy there. You are a Kierkegaard scholar, um, but next year you will not be at Redeemer, but you will be. Um, you're going to be a fellow of the Center for Philosophy of Religion at the University of Notre Dame. So that's great. Congratulations on that. Um, and now you're recording from Italy. You're not even in either of those places. So, um, yeah, maybe can you just introduce yourself to our listeners? And and then there's also the question, what is your... You have one, of course, otherwise we would probably not have invited you. Um, what is your relationship to New Calvinism? Well, it is an honor to be with you guys today. Thank you for inviting me to uh, talk to you about Kierkegaard and Neo Calvinism. It's a fun topic for me. Um, as you said, I, I teach at Redeemer University, but I will be for this next year on leave at the Center for Philosophy of Religion at the University of Notre Dame. And um, there I'm doing a little bit different project. It's on Edith Stein, which is a, a woman, female Christian philosopher who's somewhat forgotten in the field of phenomenology. But up to this point, my research has been primarily in Kierkegaard studies and the field of phenomenology in particular. When I came to Redeemer, I came as uh, someone who is not from the Southern Ontario Dutch neo-Calvinist tradition in a, in a strict sense. Uh, like many of my colleagues, I'm from the U.S. originally, and I grew up in the largely Baptist, Reformed Baptist uh, evangelical tradition. However, when I was in college, I had a professor who was very, very steeped in the neo-Calvinist tradition, and I took as many classes from him as I possibly could. And what I did not realize was that I was being fed distinctly neo-Calvinist approaches and ideas without knowing that explicitly. And so when I started inquiring into neo-Calvinism, I thought, oh, but this is just what I've always been taught, or this is actually how I think. And so it was, uh, for me, it was just a great opportunity to come to Redeemer and to have more direct access to other scholars, to texts in the tradition, and to think together with colleagues and other students about how we can resource the tradition for the world that we find ourselves in today. And could you just give us a quick, um, you know, summary in 
a couple of lines of, of your PhD thesis. So you, you also, like me, you're an Aberdeen grad. Um, so you, um, your PhD was on Kierkegaard at Aberdeen, but what exactly? And you, and you mentioned phenomenology as well. So again, for listeners who don't know what that is, uh, you know, because this is more of a theology podcast than a philosophy podcast, so this might be a new term. So what's phenomenology? What was your PhD thesis on? My PhD thesis was uh, seeking to draw connections between Soren Kierkegaard's authorship and phenomenology. And I argued that he was a proto-phenomenologist or could be read fruitfully as a proto-phenomenologist, even though the method was canonized officially after him. But I really think that without him, the method probably would not have existed in the way that it does today. So my, my PhD thesis was really trying to construct a Kierkegaardian phenomenology of hearing. So what, what is the experience of hearing? How is hearing uniquely transformative of the self uh, as a paradigm of experience, uh, really in, in comparison to seeing as a paradigm of experience? So the theological question that was driving that inquiry was, what does it mean to hear and do the word? And how does hearing and doing transform us in profound ways? And I, I wanted to give some, take some philosophical responsibility for that theological concept. So Amber, when you are talking about phenomenology, actually, and, and as I'm thinking about the neo-Calvinist tradition, I would actually think that there's actually lots of overlap between neo-Calvinism and phenomenology. So as I was writing my dissertation, and I was reading works um, from Bob and collect the foundations of psychology, and then I would also come across some works from Doeweerd on this idea of the pre-theoretical, right? How he says that it's the pre-theoretical, it's, it's that life precedes philosophy. When I think about phenomenology, I think about a robust description of that pre-theoretical life, or I would even say the pre-cognitive life. Um, it's a robust description of the human experience prior to concepts. Um, and I know there's like a debate about that, with, whether you know knowledge is always mediated by concepts, whether you go with Husserl or Heidegger. Um, but I'm a little bit ignorant about Kierkegaard's contribution here. Could you talk about how Kierkegaard's contribution might be different from or how it anticipates these other debates within phenomenology? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll first say something about phenomenology and the neo-Calvinist approach to theology, I think there are some very similar, there's some shared interests and some shared values and approaches. I think about Doivyard in particular. In fact, if you read Doivyard's text, you see that the person that he actually cites the most is Husserl, who's the father of phenomenology. And a lot of people have read Doivyard as a neo-Kantian. Um, but I actually think that if you read him as a phenomenologist, which is quite different from the neo-Kantian paradigm, he makes a lot of sense. And, and it's like his works come alive in, in a whole new way. But Doivyard's fundamental insight was this, this spiritual root of existence that he describes as a pre-theoretical thing or a precognitive thing, as you were saying. And I before had heard it described almost like a presuppositionalism in the sense that um, presuppositions are often thought of as propositional statements that you just kind of assume to be true. 
right? Like I, I just posit this statement and then I think from this statement, I don't necessarily need to defend or justify that statement. It's just the ground from which I, I will build. Um, but Doiver is not thinking about, that's not the pre-theoretical for Doiver. The pre-theoretical is, as you said, pre-theory. So prior to concepts, prior to propositional statements, it lies much more at the gut level. Um, what is it that is drawing and shaping my instincts, my impulses, my desires, kind of the default settings of my life? And so I use frequently this analogy with my students of an iceberg that you see the, the top part of the iceberg, and that is your explicit worldview, meaning the beliefs and um, the things that you think explicitly, the beliefs that you would confess, um, and the ideas that you hold intentionally. That's the part that's visible. But there's this whole part of you that's beneath the surface that might actually be 90% of you. Uh, and that is the implicit worldview. So it's the things that you believe without necessarily recognizing it, the values that you hold, the things that you are drawn to or you run away from, the things that orient and shape and guide your life, that sort of thing. Uh, they lie at the surface, beneath the surface of your awareness. And so what Doivier does is says, hey, you know, we're, to put words in his mouth, <laughs> we are, the entire iceberg is true of you. you. You do have this explicit worldview that is a significant part of you, but it's important to look at this part of you that is beneath the surface mm -hmm. that you're not always aware of and interrogate that and say, what is it that's shaping that? What direction is that moving in? And can I attend to what kind of spiritual impulses I have that are running beneath my articulated theology? That's really good. Um, when I think about what you were just saying and that Dorivirdian idea and, and this relationship phenomenology, I actually think that that's actually very Bavinkian as well. Because when you take a look at foundations of psychology, he would make these comments about the older Aristotelian psychology. You know, he observes that it's actually much better than lots of other modern alternatives. So he says that in the Aristotelian concept of the, of the human person, there's a vegetative, then there's a sensitive soul, and then there's a rational soul. Uh, but he says that what the Aristotelian conception really misses is the unity between all these three and how that the unconscious always contributes to the rational. That the rational aspect is not just a higher aspect detached from or, or above the vegetative and the sensitive, but it's oftentimes also itself motivated by unconscious motifs. And that this Aristotelian conception misses a understanding of the unconscious life, which is more known in the romantic philosophers of the day. So I think that this is a very a romantic conception of the self. There's always a mystery to the soul, Bobbing says, that we really are only peering into the mystery of the unconscious. So would you say that phenomenology is an implicit sort of entailment of something like the romantic movement? Um, I do very much agree that Bavink is Bavink's thought has a lot of phenomenological impulses in it and a lot of Aristotelian phenomenological impulses in that Bavink is very concerned with looking with starting from experience and paying attention to what is lived experience like and also trying to search internal to lived experience trying to search for the inner wisdom of things 
what is what is holding things together? How do they appear to us? What is their greater significance? What is this life world that that we live in? And and then really think from there. So he can be theoretical and, and abstract, of course, but I find him to actually be quite concrete and someone who gives a lot of dignity to concrete human experience. So I think that his interest in looking at the subconscious and recognizing that we are more than just our explicit thoughts. Um, th this is a, a trajectory that you see throughout the, the history of Western philosophy and Western philosophy and theology, starting even as far back as Augustine, who's like, yes, our ha habits are shaping of who we are and it is important, but the problem is, is that uh, you can't just habituate yourself into the truth or into goodness uh, because you have this deeper part of you and that's your desires, the level of your desires. And it just outstrips the level of your rationality and even uh, your ability to just control it at will. And so there's this problem of the will. And then you know, trace that forward, you get all the way to more of the romantic conceptions of the self, but especially with uh, the masters of suspicion, Freud, Nietzsche, and Marx. And especially Freud and Nietzsche pay attention to that subconscious and recognizing that there's a whole lot about us that we don't recognize. And on top of that, there's layers of self-deception that keep us from recognizing those things. And this is where I think Kierkegaard really comes in as a, a kindred spirit because he is someone who's very interested in the human condition and someone who's very interested in the great complexity that is human nature and human experience. So he was interested also in psychology in the way that Bob Inc. is interested in psychology, that sort of approach to psychology, um, and thought a lot about the different ways that we are walking self-deceptions and how standing alone before God is the way, the place where those things become unmasked in, in the truest sense of the term. I think this is really it's fascinating background conversation also to locate and understand J.H. Bavink better. I know we've just been talking about Herman and you know, his book on the, the subconscious and um, foundations of psychology and all of those texts. And this is all really important for that. But I think for J.H. Bavink as well, the, the way that you describe the iceberg there, I think that is... A, a really good way to describe the difference between personality and world vision for J.H. Bavink. So the world vision part is everything of the iceberg that's beneath the surface that you might not even be aware of, even though it props up the part that's above the surface. And um, so the, the world vision is made up of lots of assumptions and untested a priori's and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and they can be pretty huge actually, in order to prop up the, the bit of life that's above the surface, which you inhabit, more, not necessarily intentionally in in a self-critical way, but intentionally in directing, um, you know, the rest of the iceberg upwards. Let's say in keeping it above water, so you you inhabit it in a more, um, um, like a self-aware way without truly being self-conscious of what's beneath the uh, um the surface. So you know that you are a personality, that you are you, and not someone else but you don't often question the, the huge amount of stuff that makes you who you are. So I find that a really helpful, um, like that iceberg image is a really helpful one. And um, thinking about the difference between, I guess, in his terms, again, personality 
and um, and World Vision. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really important stuff. I think phenomenology is really neglected in, in neo-Calvinism in general. Yeah, and there's so many ways in which neo-Calvinism is, is speaking so much of the language at the same time, maybe without realizing it, just ha- has those impulses. But I, I think about what you're describing with J.H. Bavink is uh, very similar to Husserl's notion of life world. And it's also very similar to Heidegger's notion of throneness, that we are fundamentally a hermeneutical beings. Um, yeah. we, we find ourselves first in the world and we think from there. We're not mm. these objects that stand outside of the world and like look at, or sorry, we're not these subjects yeah. that stand outside of the world and look at it as an object that's detached from us, but we're always internal to it. And yeah. this is where I think the, the questions of how to do worldview become quite interesting because a lot of times we think about worldview as sort of this God's eye vision of the world. (laughs) Like I'm going to look at the world from this really abstract, I'm going to see it the way God sees it, quote unquote, as, as having this God's eye view. And I think that the, the kind of philosophical sense that you see in people like Bobink, both Bobinks, um, as well as Dewey Beard, um, and, and even Kuiper, actually disagree with that and they're actually thinking about worldview or they approach worldview from a completely different direction one that i would actually call it worldview from below as opposed to worldview from above and recognizing that we first start with human existence as recipients of revelation that revelation doesn't extract us from the world that we're inscribed in but it's something that's given to us for this world that we're in to navigate it and to to think through how to live in it faithfully. So I think phenomenology, bringing in some of those tools can actually really help us think uh, along with J.H. Bobbink and others about worldview in interesting ways. Yeah, I agree, I agree. Yeah, you're, you're just exactly saying, Amber, what we've been trying to emphasize a lot of times before on this podcast that like looking at worldview needs a very different way of approaching it than has often been done. Um, and, and also, and I think J.H. Bavink helps us in doing that and also in correcting um, ways we, we have been doing that um, <clears throat> a lot, especially I think in North America. Um, so um, we've, we've now, we were supposed to talk about Kierkegaard alone first, but we are quite incapable of doing that, especially um, when we start talking, it's New Calvinism immediately. But I still wanted to give our take the opportunity for ourselves, but also for our listeners, to ask you um, before we continue to talking about New Calvinism, which we will. Um, but um, to, to to give our readers a little bit, like how how can they? I mean, Kierkegaard is someone many of us want to read, but we struggle, I think, to read him. Um, uh, he's famously hard to read, and he has all these different characters, of course, which he brings to the table. So then there's the question, of how should we understand it? So can you maybe briefly help us and our listeners to to just recommend as a good starting point? And maybe also very briefly introducing, um, like, how, how should we then read that? Yeah, and also who he was. So, I mean, I guess we've taken it for granted that we all know who Kierkegaard was, but yeah. maybe some listeners won't. He's a really famous name, but they might... You know, they might be aware of like Denmark and big hair and that's it. Or, you know, existential yeah. philosophy. But so give us, again, a really, really short introduction to who Kierkegaard was. And, yeah, we, we are then, very yeah. good of, of, of doing definitions halfway to podcast. So this is just... Yeah, a, this is one of our trademarks. This is one of our trademarks. Yeah. 
Well, I'll, st- I'll try to start at the, be- the beginning with who he was. So he's a 19th century Danish philosopher and theologian and literary critic and social critic and all of these things. He was kind of a jack of all trades. And he lived during the golden age of Denmark, which was a time where they found a lot of economic prosperity that led to a lot of cultural prosperity as well. So there were a lot of poets and scientists and it was just a booming time. But it also was a world in which the church and state were very much intertwined. And so the Danish state church was the the Lutheran church and it still is to this day. And Kierkegaard was very, very concerned about that mix of piety and power. And what he thought was that when you do that, you create, you you think you're going to create this wonderful Christian nation, quote unquote, but what you actually create is what he calls Christendom, which is um, for him a, a destruction of Christianity. It's a way that Christianity just becomes absorbed into the structures of the world and no longer is Christianity. So to put it in neo-Calvinist terms, it has no more antithesis. It is just one and the same with the the power and the privilege of society and has no prophetic witness whatsoever. So his entire work has this desire behind it of saving Christianity from Christendom and helping to bring people to awareness of the fact that this actually isn't genuine Christianity. So he has this funny statement in in one of his works where he says in in his day, it's like a a birth certificate and a baptism certificate are the same thing. To be Danish just is to be Christian. And so he really wants to drive a wedge between those two things. And he argues that Christendom is an illusion. He's very much a precursor to the masters of suspicion here. He uses a lot of the suspicious method of critique when it comes to Christendom. But what he wants to do is to help people see the illusion. So he calls this the art of removing illusions. And he thinks a lot about this question of how do you remove an illusion? How do you help someone see something that they don't see? And how do you do it without yourself getting caught up in some kind of patronizing or controlling kind of enterprise where I'm the smart one and I'm going to help you guys see what you don't see. He, he was aware of the dangers of critique on the critic herself. And he was very concerned with how do you, how do you make someone see something that they don't see? And for him, the wrong way to do that is to back them into an intellectual corner Uh, or as I often like to say, to to make someone intellectually say uncle, because he thinks that that is not transformative whatsoever. You're you're talking about the top part of the iceberg and maybe rearranging some ideas there, but he's wanting to get to the bottom part as well. And so for him, the way that you help someone see something that they can't see without imposing some kind of violent agenda on them is through something called indirect communication. And so the way that he uses indirect communication, which is also why he's so difficult to read, as Marinus said, is he follows the model of the prophet Nathan, who goes and confronts David. 
And instead of coming at him with a six-point sermon on what all he did that was just absolutely atrocious, he tells him a story. He tells him a parable. And David kind of got inside of that parable so much that it elicited a, a real emotional response from him. And he said, you know, this person needs to be brought to justice and could see it very clearly. And then, of course, had that famous you are the man or I am the man moment that led to his great repentance. And so that's an example of indirect communication that actually is more fruitful and productive toward transformative ends. So taking that inspiration, Kierkegaard uses a lot of different strategies, the most famous of which being the use of pseudonyms or fictional characters that he creates, and he has them write their own books. So it's like, say I created the character Elmo, and then I had Elmo write a book. And that book would come from Elmo's perspective. It would be written in Elmo's language. It would be asking the kinds of questions that Elmo asks. It wouldn't necessarily be me, even though I certainly am behind this thing. So he creates all these different characters, and some of them are really funny and adorable, and some of them are a little bit more frustrating. And, and basically, they all have different positions relative to faith. So some of them are admittedly outside of faith, some of and not interested in it. Some of them find themselves at what they call the threshold of faith, kind of peering in, trying to see what it looks like. And then others uh, consider themselves to be, um, to be Christians, to be inside the faith. And so what he does with these different perspectives is he's able to get different vantage points on this phenomenon of faith and then think through them and with them about what this thing is. And hopefully what he wants is for his readers not to be preoccupied with him as a thinker in the sense of, well, what is Kierkegaard's system? And what does Kierkegaard say about this and this and this? Ultimately, what he wants is to create the conditions for the possibility of a transformative event for the reader while reading. And so this is actually what draws me <laughs> the most to him and has from the beginning is because I had never read a philosophical text before that brought me to my knees. Um, and also that brought me some of the greatest comfort spiritually that I have ever experienced at one and the same time. And so I always say that the most successful reading of Kierkegaard is when you actually have to put his work down and you have to go and talk to God. <laughs> and I think that's exactly what, what he wants and what his project is. And so that's, that's why I think he's wonderful. That's why I think he's edifying and really upbuilding to read. But that's also why he's challenging, because you have to recognize that you can't just go and pick up one of his books and open it to a certain page and read a few lines and be like, ah, oh, Kierkegaard says this. Because you might read something from Johannes de Salentio, or you might read something from, you know, Johannes the Seducer, or Judge William, or and, and not realize that this is a conversation with a lot of different voices and perspectives. So bearing that in mind, um, the complexity of knowing where your on-ramp is into Kierkegaard, could, so if someone wants to read one text as a one-off, um, where would you begin? So when I teach Kierkegaard um, here in Edinburgh, it's in the context of a course on 
modern continental European theology, a lot of which means that we have to talk about what philosophers are saying in theology. Um, and some of the students have read him before, but most haven't. So the texts that I give them in that context are um, Diapsalmata um, and Rotation of Crops. I think they both work really well as one-off texts for reading him. But if you have any others, um, and I'd recommend that anyone who's listening, go and read those. They're, they're just fantastic pieces of writing. Um, but yeah, others, give me some recommendations if you have any. Yeah, I, I love those texts. They're really fun. Um, they are written by the the aesthete, and so they're they're sort of like Kierkegaard's uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, Kohelet's writings of vanity of vanities. It's all vanity, you know. So he's he's very much writing from that perspective. My favorite line in there is, uh, "Marry me and you'll regret it. Don't marry me and you'll regret it." <laughs> Which yeah, sounds and like everything you can do, you'll regret it. Yeah. <laughs> And everything exactly. Um, yeah. So he, he's really good at kind of busting some of our triumphalistic myths about human experience. But um, so the the first thing that I would recommend actually is to get a good secondary text because I think that that text actually gives you some conceptual coat hangers to then approach his work. And the two that I recommend are C. Stephen Evans' Introduction to Kierkegaard and. Another text by Merrill Westfall called Kierkegaard's Understanding, sorry, Kierkegaard's Conception of Faith. And that text is interesting because he gives you little, little summaries of the different texts in the authorship. And so usually if you read that and then you'll find the one that kind of interests you and then, and then you go for that. For theologians, I usually recommend going to his book for self-examination. Uh, that one is written by his, his under his signed name, so not a pseudonym. And it's all about hearing and doing the word and, and about how we read scripture as scripture. For people who are just have more of a general interest, his text Works of Love is beautiful, but I really love his upbuilding discourses. So the Lily of the Bill Lily and the bird, um, they're just absolutely wonderful. So those would be some suggestions, but I do recommend going first with a, a secondary text. So I've got a question about apologetics um, and how Kierkegaard's usually caricatured and located within the discourse of apologetics. And you talked about really eloquently the way in which you wanted to get at not the space of reasons, but underneath the space of reasons and the conditions for a transformative conversation and not just relocating, reassigning the rational space on top of the iceberg, right? Um, and so oftentimes he's described and caricatured as a fideist, right? He doesn't really care about giving you reasons for the faith. He's therefore different than the classical or evidentialist approach. And to me, there's a kind of parallel here to even like the Kuyperian approach and neo-Calvinism where oftentimes they too are described as the fideists because they don't want to give direct reasons. They want to get underneath those direct reasons. They want to get to the heart. And they argue that just getting at and giving reasons does not really challenge those sort of heart presuppositions that you talked about. So maybe talk about those caricatures and whether we can call Kierkegaard a fideist. I'm guessing you have a lot of thoughts about that and the conversation of apologetics there. This is a really fun topic of conversation because he definitely has been the whipping boy, particularly in the evangelical tradition. Usually a lot of people start with talking about this irrationalist Kierkegaard who started us, who, as Schaefer says, plunged us under the line of despair. <laughs> and we're here now to kind of correct that and show that faith can be reasonable and that it's not wrong to hold reasons for our faith. And 
the the approach to the fideist idea is that if you have reasons for faith, it contaminates faith. That faith, by definition, is irrational, and it's no longer faith as soon as you start to have reasons for it. Kierkegaard, I think, would push against the rationalist, fideist dichotomy that they both share, which is that faith and reason are these two totally separate things, and one is the contaminant of the other. What he is more interested in, and I think this is very similar to the neo-Calvinist tradition, as you said, is helping us understand that our reason is not objective, universal, and uh, fully reliable, in part because we have these layers of self-deception underneath us that do a really good job of turning our reason in one direction or another. And what he's concerned about is when you subsume Christianity into your rational framework. So think about this really dumb example of, uh, say you have a you're at a club and you have a bouncer outside of the door that is in charge of looking at everybody's ID and determining if they can come into the club or if, you know, sorry, you're drunk, go home. And for a lot of times, Christians, particularly in the apologetical spheres, they think about reason as the bouncer. And so reason is the one that gets to say to the contents of faith, yes, we can accept you, come on in, or no, sorry, go home, we can't accept you. And so it positions reason as this legitimizer of the things of faith. And um, what Kierkegaard argues is that that's actually really, really damaging because what happens is reason is the one that is in charge of ultimately determining your God concept. And so much like people like Feuerbach who were concerned and critiqued Christianity and religion, especially Christianity, as ultimately just being a projection of whatever we believe and desire. And it's just a rational construct um, and not an actual encounter with a divine other who actually, more often than not, tends to turn our rational constructs and our lives upside down. And so when he talks about the paradox of faith, he's not saying that faith is absurd in the sense that it is um, it's anti-reason. Faith, the, the paradox of faith is when you come to the point that the edge of your reason and you encounter the God who just simply won't fit inter- internal to those nice, comfortable categories. And you have this decision, am I going to hold fast to my comfortable categories or am I going to surrender them so that I can actually encounter this other who is so much bigger than me. So there's a much more sophisticated and nuanced view of the relationship between faith and reason for Kierkegaard than I think a lot of people uh, give him credit for. That's great. We need that. Yeah, that's so helpful, Amber. And also thank you um, for your introduction you just gave. I thought it was a really great, uh, a really great introduction, um, very clear and also um well, the last part that it like brings you to your knees. So that's what it does. That that's that's obviously very beautiful. And I think I don't know if you can call Kierkegaard a theologian, but I guess he's a philosopher and a theologian maybe. Uh, but that's something theology should do. Um, so that that that's wonderful. And another um, 
comment I ever thought I have. Like the the first, maybe the first couple of minutes of your introduction, that could have been the description of Stanley Howard was. Um, I've never made this connection until you were introducing him right now. Others must have made it, but just like this, this critic who critiques Christendom, um, who is in a context of uh, where the state and and Christianity are wedded, and where your birth certificate is your Christian certificate, and that it's very unhelpful and all stuff like that. Um, that's that's a fascinating link. I, I never made it, and it's and it's so and it's so strong. Um, so well, can I say, Marinus, that you're actually correct? It's an accurate link because I, I once had a conversation with Howard Wass about this very thing because I was detecting so much Kierkegaardian uh, right. influence in his thought, but he, it's not like he quotes him very much, you know? And he actually started out as a Kierkegaard scholar and, in fact, spent a lot of time at the Kierkegaard Library in St. Olaf and took the baby Danish course that we all have to take. And he said, I realized, though, uh, and I don't know that I agree with this. I, I certainly don't agree with this. But he said, I got to the point where I realized I was going to have to read Kierkegaard for the rest of my life. And I decided I wanted to read Bart instead. <laughs> and so that was the direction he took. So it, his early formative influence is very Kierkegaardian. It's, it, does he mention this in his memoir? Because I, I, I've read the memoir, but maybe I just forgot. And now my subconsciousness just brings it back as if it's my own idea. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I actually haven't read it. Right. And there's obviously another branch of the multiverse where Hauerwas decided to stick with Kierkegaard and not yes. read Bart. Yep. And theology is all very different. And Christendom and those problems have just been resolved for everyone everywhere. Yeah. Exactly. Although, of course, the, the step from Kierkegaard to Bart is not very strange. I mean, Bart was also dealing with Kierkegaard a lot. Mm. Um, so maybe Kierkegaard led him to Bart in some ways. I don't know. Um, yeah. But yeah, an, another thing uh, that well is the thought I've I've had many times. We we've had multiple conversations before this this podcast, and this is even what kind of brought you um, here is that a, a, a mutual friend of ours um, just said you uh, okay we got we 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 can mention him. He's kind of like that. He, he's a pastor in Hamilton where you live, Bill DeYoung, and he he just like put us in a. On, on a coffee table and said, you have to talk about Schilder and Kierkegaard because they have so much in common. So you see, like, commanded us to talk. <laughs> and we there did. Yeah. yeah, it is. Um, and now when, when you gave this introduction again, I, I had many thoughts um, and reflections on Schilder again. It's so interesting. Also the way I think... Um, so Schilder, I think, a little bit different from Bavink and Kuiper, um, read Kierkegaard a lot and also like worked in a time when Kierkegaard was more widely read compared to Bavik. I think Bavik mentioned him a few times, right? You, you can maybe say something about that, James, but... Um, yeah, I can give you some statistics even. Um, so right. there's a website called Delfer and it's a mass digitization project of Dutch language literature and it's really, really helpful in finding who was talking about mm -hmm. which figures and when. So if you, and, and it's not entirely representative, but it's a mass digitization project. So it's really, um, it, it's very instructive. So there were five references to Kierkegaard in Dutch books in the 19th century that are on Delphur. And yes, that is very representative. And then when you go into the 20th century, it goes to like yeah. 1,900 um, yeah, references exactly. plus. And if you look at journal articles in the 19th century, again, I mean, it's maybe, I forget the exact number, but it's maybe like 60 or 65 references to Kierkegaard in that century in Dutch language 
academic journals. And then when you go into the 20th century, it just skyrockets. But yeah. it only really um, peaks when you get into the middle of the 20th century. So until yeah. then, Dutch people just weren't reading him as much. And I've, I've, I wonder if maybe part of that is, again, something that makes Kierkegaard so interesting historically, which was that he petitioned the king for permission to write his um, university dissertation in Danish rather than in, in German or Latin. So that's a really interesting, very like, Protestant choice. Um, and also, I mean, comparable to neo-Calvinism in lots of ways, you know, to write in the language of the people, uh, you know, write in the language that his, that his mum could understand, because I think she was illiterate, if I'm correct, right? So, um, but if you choose to write in your own language in the 19th century and your own language is Danish, it's probably going to take, you know, maybe a century or so before non-Danes start to have access to your work. But yeah. Yeah, you can trace out the history yeah, but, there. It's quite interesting. Yeah, so it took it took a while before it, but I think there was a, like a minor Kierkegaard revival in the Netherlands, or at least some of the work were translated already early um, in the twentieth century. There was this this uh, this he was in he was in the in the mainline church, uh, Isidorus van Dijk. He translated a number of articles, and then he became re- relatively popular, at least among theologians and philosophers. Um, and that's also the time when Schilder picked it up. So I think he read it. Uh, probably a bit more than Bavik and Kuypert, although, as we have already seen, there are quite some similarities, um, even without like reading each other, um, a lot of connections. But yeah, so um, <clears throat> I think what you just said about... So our our, our hypothesis, Amber, is we, we haven't completely worked this out yet, but we, we can share this on this podcast when we're talking, is that there's a lot more influence of Kierkegaard on Schilder than is often assumed. Um and um, that that even and not only as is often said on style or or method, uh, but also in terms of content. Because I think when I talk from a Dutch perspective, we often associate Kierkegaard a lot more with Karl Barth um, than we compare him with Reformed. And maybe Schilder is guilty of that also because he he identifies Barth with Kierkegaard to the point that very often he can just say Barth dash Kierkegaard, as if they were kind of the same. Um, and I think the description of the paradox you just gave, that is that is exactly the description Schilder would like and and the one he attacks in in Bart and supposedly but wrongly Kierkegaard is the opposite of that one. So that that's again really fascinating. Um, and so good to know. So Schilder was in his time called by others a reformed Kierkegaard. So you had these books coming out like in the 1910s, I think, uh, these translations of Kierkegaard and then Schilder was also writing his meditations and stuff. And then people saw this connection. They were like, yeah, you you are similar um, in, in style at least. Um, and um, and also what you just said, like that he wrote his text um, at, like kind of as a performance maybe, right? With with very much the eye to the intended effect of the text it had and in that very moment. I think that's also very much Schilder, which also makes Schilder hard to read, just as Kierkegaard right now, because also because he's very contextual. Um, as Schilder's texts bring you to your knees, that's that's another question. Some definitely do. I think you've read some in Christ and His Suffering. There, there are definitely some texts there which really do that. Um, but he's also very polemical, and and that is another side. So so maybe give us something into your your thoughts about what I've just said and and reflections of our earlier conversations about this. Yeah, this has been something really fun to think about because uh, from multiple perspectives. Number one, as you said, I I really think that there's too much of a conflation of Kierkegaard and Bart um, in in perception. I think 
Bart at certain points, particularly when it comes to the question of revelation, missed some very important nuances uh, in, in Kierkegaard. And I hope to explore that more in the future. But I think that, and this is, this is kind of just a hypothetical idea, but I think that if historical circumstances were different and that if Kierkegaard is closer to the time of um, when the neo-Calvinist tradition really started um, rolling, <laughs> I think he would be very, very inclined towards it because I see some earlier movements in his thought in that direction. So, so if you're going to say, you know, is Kierkegaard, would he side more with Bart or with the neo-Calvinists? I actually want to make the argument he would be more, uh, have more of an affinity to neo-Calvinism. And, and I'll tell you uh, why to just neo-Calvinism in general, but then maybe specific to Skilder. Um, there, there are three things that I think are very unique in his authorship that correspond really nicely to neo-Calvinism. One is he, so he's not a systematic theologian in the traditional sense of the term. He, he's a philosopher. He's also a theologian. But I think he does something that I think we could call existential dogmatics. So he's certainly orthodox. Some people wonder if he just throws orthodoxy out the window in favor of just pure existentialism. He, he definitely is orthodox. But his way of approaching and thinking about theology is not so much in the abstract, systematic, dogmatic perspective, but he is doing dogmatics from below. And I think that what you see in his texts, uh, so because of that, it's not exactly explicit in the same way that another systematic theology book would be. So you have to do a little bit of digging, but you see a very, very robust doctrine of creation in Kierkegaard, that he takes sin and depravity extremely seriously, the noetic effects of sin, the totalized effects of sin, um, and, and looks at the different layers of that a lot, but he very much grounds things in the doctrine of creation. And then he has this really, really interesting notion of time and eternity that I think I've actually argued does not correspond well to a two kingdoms eschatology. It's actually quite incompatible with a two kingdoms eschatology, which is super interesting because I mean, you guys are the theologians and would know this more than me, but from my research, at the time, what was on offer really just was for him two kingdoms eschatology. I mean, there, the, the Lutheran state church certainly held to that, but then there was also the Moravian pietist movement that was going through at the time that he, he was influenced by. Both had different approaches to culture, but they, they still nonetheless um, held to a two kingdoms eschatology. But he has this notion of... Um, he defines hope as looking as the the hope for the eternal's continued association with the temporal, which sounds a little bit abstract and weird, but I think it's such a beautiful concept that it's the eternal God who breaks into the temporal, and, and that's the, the paradox we can't understand. How did the eternal come into the temporal? human mind cannot comprehend what what this is, how this works, um, the God-man. But this is the promise that we get through Christ, is that God will continue his association with the temporal, meaning he's at work to redeem the temporal, and he introduces new possibilities that were foreign to the temporal prior to 
the coming, the word of Christ. And so it's a very, um, it is not an otherworldly kind of eschatology. There certainly is a discontinuity in his eschatological uh, articulation, but there's a kind of beautiful picture of the mediating work of Christ as being redemptive to the temporal. So I, I think those accord really nicely um, in ways that they, they are a little bit odd in his theological context. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Uh, this is, I mean, this is really fascinating because what you what you just described, like the the relationship between time and eternity, and and how God like wants to continue and values the temporal, that is like exactly what Schilder directs at Bart. So he says, um, with you, Karl Bart, what you propose, you make this distinction between time and eternity that they are just points that only very briefly like connect, but you can never grasp the connection. So there's there's the, the 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 connection between the two always escapes you because God is so different from us, right? There's this text from Bartwood saying, "Well, you, you are on earth, human, and God is in heaven." Um, I think it's from Ecclesiastes. That that uh, that, that Bart quotes all the time. But um, so I just wonder. It's so strange because and Schilder would also like point to Kierkegaard, saying just exactly the opposite of what you just say. Well, you say no. Kierkegaard's point is that time and eternity. God and history, uh, they do connect and very profoundly, and God is committed to. And of course, I think this is like a new Calvinist term. People would say this is creation and recreation are deeply connected to each other, um, and can never be can never be drawn apart. So it's it's just kind. Of, I, I'm still puzzling at this this uh, the amount of misunderstanding. This this if you were right, this supposes between um, like Bart and Schilder and Kierkegaard. Well, I, I do think that this is the hard part about Kierkegaard is you really do have to kind of read him comprehensively. Um, uh, Howard West was right about that because there are certain texts where he talks, and this is a theme, uh, he talks about the infinite qualitative difference between God and man. And that's probably, that is more of the Bardian idea of the radical otherness of God. But he thinks that that is important to maintain precisely for that reason, that problem or that question of projection. Do we just create an idolatrous conception of God as this, you know, super being, whatever I want him to be. And so he wants there to be a, a confrontation from the outside, from the divine other. And he recognizes that as like an uh, offensive kind of experience. Like you recognize you're being encountered by the truly other when you experience offense. If you don't experience offense, chances are the Jesus you're worshiping is probably a projection of your own ideals and values. So he does want to have this uh, this discontinuity and this radical otherness, but his notions of time and eternity connect on this concept of the moment, uh, you know, capital T, capital M, the moment, and that he defines as the point where time and eternity touch. It's the moment par excellence is the incarnation of Christ when the eternal came into the temporal. And we continue to have these moments where the where sorry where the eternal continues his association and continues to work and is committed to working in the temporal. So there's this this point of intimate and also radical encounter between time and eternity. 
So th these synergies that you're drawing out between neo-Calvinism and Kierkegaard, are, I think are just really fascinating. Um, also, when we think about Hermann Bavinck's use of Kierkegaard, he doesn't crop up loads in Bavinck's writings. That just fits in with the kind of his historical reception of Kierkegaard in the Netherlands. You know, we, we probably couldn't expect Bavinck to be quoting him way more than anyone else was. It just reflects those patterns. But when he does use him, it's almost always appreciatively and borrows him in a pretty unqualified sense. So the closest thing to criticism of Kierkegaard and Bavinck is in Bavinck's book on modern education. And there's one part of that book where he's critiquing um, like modern pedagogy as overly individualizing children and not having a more organic anthropology. And um, it's more atomistic in how it was, and how it was forming children to think about themselves in how they're schooled. And he does list a, a, um, a group of philosophers um, whose works he thought were received in culture in an individualizing kind of way. So Kierkegaard fits in there. Um, but that might even be more of a, a comment on um, you know, how Kierkegaard fits into or was being used by you know, a bigger constellation than just Kierkegaard himself. But that's the closest thing to negative commentary. But the rest of what we find is really positive. Um, so there's one interesting point where Bavinck um, borrows Kierkegaard's critique of atheism you know, with the idea that the atheist, or an atheist framework means that you just live from moment to moment. And that's actually very problematic in trying to frame a human life in existentially satisfying ways. So he's happy just to lift that straight out there and name check him. And, um, and also, the, I mean, the, the most profoundly within Kierkegaard, the critiques that we've already discussed in the podcast about um, Christendom and Christianity and nominalism. Um, so, I mean, when when Bavinck refers to those critiques within Kierkegaard, I mean, he describes them as like the remarkable Dane Soren Kierkegaard, and he's really full of praise in those contexts. So, um, the, the, the reception of Kierkegaard in Hermann Bavinck is limited, but also just telling in, in how willing and happy he seems to have been to absorb Kierkegaard's thoughts. Um, I mean, I, I don't know, Gray, do you have anything that you could add on how Kierkegaard gets received in, I don't know, like, like Van Til or um, yeah, other well, figures that we could put broadly in the tradition might be surprising? Well, yeah, when Amber was um, just fixing her... Earpods just now. I was I just did a quick search on what Van Til said about Kierkegaard, and there's this reference to Kierkegaard in Common Grace in the Gospel, where Van Til says, "To use the phrase of Kierkegaard, we ask how the moment is to have significance. Our claim as believers is that the moment cannot intelligently shown, intelligently be shown to have any significance, except upon the presupposition of the biblical doctrine of the ontological Trinity." So. Somehow he's trying to say with Kierkegaard that the moment is to have a relation to the eternal only because there is that presupposition of the ontological trinity in the background. And what others have pointed out is that when Van Til talks about presupposition, he's not just talking about beliefs that you have to have. Like you, don't, you, you need the belief of the trinity to relate the moment to eternity or something like that. And that, I think, interpreting presupposition in that way has led people to think that Van Til is kind of this quasi-rationalist, like you have to be such an internalist, you have to have these beliefs for you to have a coherent worldview. But he actually also means ontological presuppositions, like in reality, this has to be the case. And he's appealing to Kierkegaard there, apparently. So um, it would be really interesting to just to have a thesis on the influence of Kierkegaard on neo-Calvinism broadly, if that makes sense. Whoa. And that would that, be really that would interesting. Be, that would be awesome. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. So tracing the use of Kierkegaard from the first generation, second generation, not only in the Netherlands, but also in a context like America. Mm. It's also interesting the, the reception or the articulation of, of his thought because 
I think, so here's two kind of different examples, one what James gave and one what Gray gave. As far as Van Til, that's, that's quite an interesting articulation of the moment um, that I was talking about before. And a term, something that Kierkegaard repeats is that the moment has to have decisive significance, which for him is what changes, is what makes this different from Socratic recollection. So he thinks that in order for anything new to be possible or in order for motion to happen or any kind of transformation to occur, you need to have an outside term inserted. Um, so you have to have something outside of the human horizon that is inserted into it that introduces a, a radically new possibility. And that's what creates the possibility for change or motion or transformation. And what he says is if, if it's not something that's inserted from the outside, then that moment has no decisive significance. So as a really easy example, we have a lot of significant moments in our lives every day, like when you meet a new person or when you see your friend's baby for the first time or, or you get a job offer or something like that, that these can be um, life transforming in, in certain respects. But he thinks that those are just relative changes. Those aren't absolute changes. Uh, so an absolute change would be when a possibility is inserted that was impossible before, say the full forgiveness of sins or the resurrection of the dead. This was not a possibility internal to the human horizon before Christ. And so this is his, his really it's connected to his argument against Hegel too, but this concept of the moment needing to have decisive significance. And in order for that to happen, it has to be from the outside, which I think is what uh, he's getting at with saying there needs to be this ontological presupposition of, of the eternal, mm. of the divine other. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and to use maybe scholastic categories, there has to be a principium essendi, a first principle of ontology that is outside of history, that gives meaning to history in that sense, right? So Bavink argues if you don't have this first principle, then everything in history becomes really unintelligible. It's just a array of changes and no real eternal significance, and there is no meaning to the moment again. Yeah, and, and maybe to just briefly comment on James's uh, example of Bavink's critique of Kierkegaard as being a, a hyper-individualist or kind of encouraging a trend toward hyper-individualism, uh, it, it is certainly the case that I think people have read him that way in the past. However, I would really argue that his notion of the single individual, quote-unquote, is actually remarkably similar to J.H. Bobbing's notion of personality. That it's more about, it's not about an atomic, self-subsisting, isolated individual. Uh, it's about a, a person who is singular, uh, a uniquely created by God, irreplaceable, singular personality. And so I, I don't read him as a hyper-individualist, um, but again, see another kind of connection there with, with the neo-Calvinist tradition, even though he certainly has been read that way in the past. So a question I have, Amber, is talking again about reception and, um, of Kierkegaard, and this is relevant, I guess, to us if we're neo-Calvinists who are thinking about how to use him well, but um, I guess it, it, it strikes me as a similar kind of question to what you you know what you need to ask. Let's say if you're not Lutheran and you want to, let's say you're Reformed and you're reading a Lutheran like Bonhoeffer or 
you know, even if you just go back to read Luther himself and you find lots of insights that you think are really helpful. Um, when I'm trying to help my students think that through, um, I try to guide them through some just diagnostic questions about theological self-awareness. Um, you know, the person that you're reading is rooted in a distinct tradition. And if you're not from that tradition, then you just have to think about, you know, how are you, like, what's the point of contact? How do you build bridges um, in order to make a responsible use of this figure? Um, for Kierkegaard, um, you know, he, he, his background is obviously in the in Lutheranism and in the the state church in Denmark, but he's also very critical of it, and he, he's got a fascinating story to tell there. What are those diagnostic questions like for you know, how we go about reading Kierkegaard? If you know, if we're quite self aware that that we're rooted in a distinct theological tradition, and I know we've talked about a lot of affinity between Neo Calvinism and Kierkegaard, but is is it even the wrong kind of question to put him in the same kind of group of you know Lutheran thinkers like like you know a Bonhoeffer or something like that, where you you, you know if you, if you go in to read a Bonhoeffer or or just you know a whole lot of Lutheran theologians, you do have to have some awareness of you know quite like deep Lutheran sensibilities around law and gospel or again two kingdoms. You've already mentioned that um, in, in a really interesting context there. Um, I mean, as, as Kierkegaard, although he, you know, he grew up in a Lutheran soil, although not exclusively, if you mentioned the Moravians in the background, is he just a one-off? So, you know, we're, we're all approaching him from something that's different to him himself anyway. I think he's such a complicated figure, and he's certainly not someone who's going to say, I'm committed to a particular tradition of thought. I think he's too much of a free thinker for that and has so many different sources of, of influence. And he's also really paying attention to this question of what time is it in his his current cultural context. And so he speaks often, you, you see strong Lutheran um, influence on, on Kierkegaard, and he does refer to him quite a bit. He also really critiques the way that people tend to read Luther, specifically as kind of a theological justification for becoming secular, <laughs> Um, so he's like, you know, at first it was all about works is necessary for salvation. Then Luther came and freed us from that. So long live Luther. We don't need to do any work anymore. So kind of this licentiousness and, um, and he's, you know, obviously jesting there, but he, he's poking fun, not of Luther so much as the way that Luther is, is read. I also think, as I said, there's, there's, uh, conflicts with Lutheran eschatology. I also think there's conflicts with Lutheran with very clean cut divisions between law and gospel um, in Lutheran theology and in Kierkegaard's work. He has just a much more dynamic approach to things like transformation and ethics and um, and, and this notion of the becoming self. Um, he, he finds Lutheran theology to be a bit too static. And so, yeah, I, I think he's just kind of too much of a free thinker, which is why people from a variety of different Christian traditions have found so much there to glean because he just kind of refuses to fit in any box. I think what's really emerging from this conversation too, just as a hermeneutical uh, perspective on how to read neo-Calvinism is how much you have to do so much reading in 19th, 20th century philosophy at large to understand what's going on in the tradition. And when I think back about when I was starting my own PhD dissertation on Bavink and reading the secondary literature on Bavink, a lot of the lopsided readings of Bavink comes from either folks who've only read 
say, the Orthodox or Scholastic tradition and then read that into Bavink on the one side. And then there's also folks at the Dutch secondary sources, especially, who have only read Phenomenology, Kant, Hegel, Schleiermacher, and then read that back into Bavink. But what we're seeing right now is how much Orthodox, yet also, again, modern categories are really influential and really useful for not only reading, I think, neo-Calvinism, but also just, just thinking holistically about Christianity, faith and reason. And here we see phenomenology and so much of its impact on, on Christianity in positive ways, not just negative ways, which is oftentimes in evangelical circles. We're so allergic to this kind of language, thinking that it's all just you know critical theory or, or something like that. Yeah, and I, I think that question of, of what time is it and that hermeneutical self-awareness and the idea of doing theology from where we find ourselves is, is a strongly neo-Calvinist um, attitude, and it's, it's one that Kierkegaard shares as well. And so it means that theology is this ongoing task. <laughs> we never work ourselves out of a job. We never complete the system, as it were, or figure it out, but it's something that we're constantly doing as we're paying attention to our, our place and time and, and also what God has given us through Revelation and the work he's doing in the world. Yeah, it's great. Um, yeah, so I think we almost have to um, put an end to this wonderful conversation. Um, one question that I'm going to ask, means of closing, it's not really a closing question, but it's just a question that has been on my mind um, during this conversation. So one pronounced um, difference between... Um, I think Bart and New Calvinism, and also how it was for that matter, is the like the view on Christian politics. It's a discussion we have had recently with another guest. Um, so, so New Calvinism has this pretty strong view on that. Like, on well, it it came together with the founding of a Christian party, right? And that you you can do distinctly Christian politics and should do it also. Um, Bart always has steered away from that. How it was as well. Um, it's a bit of an anachronistic question, maybe. Um, but how how would you think think Kierkegaard would 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 like approach this question? What, what what would you think about that? You know those people who you wish that they had lived ten years longer to see how they would complete their own thoughts. <laughs> I I really feel that way about Kierkegaard because um, he really ended his authorship with antithesis. With, <laughs> he was very much a, a, a wailing prophet on the street corner, just really directly attacking uh, Christendom and very much criticizing theologians turned politicians <laughs> and the way that there is that, as I said before, that conflation of piety and power. And he thought that it was just so toxic. And so he was really reacting against that. And he he did not ever, you're not going to get as much as so many Kierkegaard scholars try so hard and do all kinds of leaps and twists with his text to get some kind of social program out of him. Um, you're not going to get that from him really because he keeps going back to what we're not trying to, I don't want to pay attention to political revolution. I want to pay attention to a spiritual kind of reformation and so he's criticized as being, you know, so spiritually minded that he's of no earthly good. But I really think if you if you read him, what he's saying is something a little bit more like doy weird that, look, it's the spiritual that's the root of existence. And, and the material is simply the expression of the spiritual. 
And so if we're going to just change the material conditions without paying attention to that deeper root, then you're just rearranging the chairs on the Titanic and you're just doing this external cosmetic work, basically. And so I think that that was his, where he saw his task and his calling was this more of this spiritual awakening, if you were, um, that doesn't mean that Christians abdicate the temporal or abdicate the public square even because he was obviously very much in the public square, uh, but just in more of an antithetical prophetic kind of voice at the end in particular. But I kind of wonder what would happen, as I said, if, if he had proceeded with that thought where he would go next. Thank you very much, Amber, for uh, being with us. This episode was a great and very enjoyable conversation. Um, and listeners also, thank you for being with us this episode. Um, we also want to ask you to leave a review in your podcast app that helps other listeners find us, tell your friends about it, and share it on social media. We also love to hear back from you, either on socials or uh, by sending an email to greatsincommonpodcast at gmail.com. Also, we would welcome financial support. So if you want to make a donation, check uh, the link to our donor box in the show notes. Thank you very much for listening. This is Grace in Common.